I uh, have had the awesome privilege of uh, coaching your entire staff uh, for about seven months. And uh, it was so wonderful to be able to uh, be around those guys. They are very inspiring to me. They bring a lot of energy to who I am. And I, I'm very fortunate because there's only a handful of people that I can say in my life that when I'm around, they add so much value that I feel so much better about myself. And your staff is one of those people. So you need to really understand that you have a really phenomenal staff that's there. Um, so I, uh, I really appreciate to be able to be here with, uh, in Dan's stead and um, that uh, process. Uh, he's over, uh, as you know, preaching away, and I texted him early this morning as I was praying for him and, and let him know that uh, I was humbled to be able to be here and that I uh, was looking so forward to hearing how he hit it out of the park over there in Clarkston because he's, uh, he's quite a guy, if you know him. Uh, so you're going to see a tamer fella today, okay? I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not an aerobics instructor, so I'm, and, and I'm not a high wind, actually. Uh, so I'm not a high wind, so I don't do calisthenics or things like Dan would do up here. I, mean, I don't have high energy like he's got. Um, I've been here when he's played piano worship, and he, he reminds me of a Mexican jumping bean as he you know, kind of does his thing. So He's just on fire for God, and I just love that so much. And, and it is, it's good to see Randy here this morning. Like, Randy's my twin, if you don't know that. I'm the fat Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's the Danny DeVito guy. So... Um, <laughs> Good friend. We've known Randy and Kathy for quite a while at Puyallup Foursquare, too. So uh, we really have one of those things. So uh, Dan told me you guys were covering this uh, positioning for a miracle, and he's covered a lot of things. And he asked me if I'd kind of do the receiving part, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll do my best, but really kind of what God has laid on my heart is more of a summation of where you've been. So Dan will probably start again when I'm back, and, and, and there's no sense in reinventing the wheel. But uh, I just wanted to uh, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. So this morning we're going to uh, talk out of um, for, uh, Second Kings. Thanks for reminding me that, Dave. I gave him a thing and he says, your text reference was wrong. So, so Second Kings, if you'd bring that up and, and um, we're going to go ahead and read this. It says, uh, one day the widow of a member of a group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help, Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all. Say nothing at all. Except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars. Say empty jars. As you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from the flask in the jars, setting each one aside when it's filled. So she did as she was told. Her son kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her, and the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. (coughs) There are certain stories in Scripture that just kind of stick with you. And this story has been a lifesaver of mine since about 1993, when I was an unpaid associate at Lake Taps Christian Church years ago and uh, struggling with balancing ministry and balancing work and 
my family was going through some things and I was going through some things and going through some dark times and this scripture just jumped out at me. And I have studied this thing for 23 years and it has been a lifesaver for me. Some of you know that uh, my wife had a small cancer scare a while back. and uh, We've been struggling with women's issues for about nine months. And they finally diagnosed her. Uh, the day after Christmas, we got a call that uh, it was uterine cancer. And so, you know, my wife at the stalwart, you know, God's in control. And I was the one that's, oh, man, I may be a widow. You know, and you go through all those problems and everything else. And how are we going to afford to live? And for about 48 hours, I just thought, oh, God, what am I going to do? You know, because to me, it was like, oh, that, you know, when you put the C word into a sentence, it gets to be a pretty heavy thing. And I thought, oh, dear God, why? You know, and then he brought me back to the scripture. And when it really hit me so hard was when I was sitting in the waiting room in the hospital. And I was by myself and I was noticing, you know, and I was, you know, reading and doing things that you do when you're in a waiting room and Val was in surgery. And all of a sudden, God kind of hit me and I said, okay, God, what's going on? And I kind of just closed everything off and I sat in a corner of the waiting room, moved over in the corner of the room, and I began to watch people. And on my left was a, a Jewish couple. He had his hat and his tassels and they were all there and their grandson was in there with brain issues. And you could just see the, the dread on their face. And another couple was there, obviously with children. A child was going through some stuff. And another couple, a wife was going through something. And another couple, something else was going through something. And I, I just began to notice and I said, you know, some of these people are saved, some of them aren't. And I said, God, what is the thing that is common here? And the thing that became common was that we were all empty. No matter what we could do, we couldn't force an outcome. It was up to God. We had to resign ourselves that he's God and we're not. And so this morning when I talk about receiving and we talk about different things, I want you guys to remember the idea that nothing is a critical aspect of receiving with God. So um, I just does anybody know who Richard Wormbrand is? Some of you, Randy, might know. Uh, Tortured for Christ. Remember reading some of those things? Okay. Um, Richard Wormbrand was a Christian guy that was a Romanian Christian, put in prison for 14 years and tortured every day for 17 hours. They made him sit perfectly still. If he nodded his head, they would hit him. If he closed his eyes, they would hit him. And they would uh, bend him over and slap the bottom of his feet with a rubber hose. 14 hours, 17 hours a day for 14 years. And during this time, they worked up this communication process um, to talk between cells because they were totally isolated. And this communication process was a series of kind of like Morse code, taps. And as they would tap through the walls or on the pipes, this series of isolated cells became a community. And they asked one day, I wish we could have communion. And they said, well, we don't have any bread. We don't have any wine. And Wormbrandt said, well, you know, God, what do we have? And through a series of prayer and through a series of things, they began to realize that, well, bread is nothing more than wheat. And wheat comes from the earth, and God created wheat. And he created the earth out of nothing. 
So maybe communion is possible. And so they talked about it a while. They said, well, you know, wine comes from grapes. Grapes come from the earth. God created the earth. And he created the earth out of nothing. And he began to realize that nothing is something. Otherwise, God never would have used it. And so they came to the conclusion that if we have nothing, that is something. And so every morning at a specific time, a series of taps set everybody ready. And they raised their nothing to God in communion. And God built a community in isolation through a crisis time. So the first point that I want to show in this sermon, in this series, in this story, is that crisis leads us to our nothing usually. And it doesn't always have to lead us to our nothing, but it's funny how crisis usually is the very thing that brings us to an end of ourselves. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. There are times through this last 23 years that I finally said, okay, God, I know that you're trying to bring me to this point, that you're God and I'm not, that what I bring to the table in the, in the guise of eternity doesn't have really a whole lot of power. So I yield to you. And I think that we can get that going, but most of the time, crisis is what really brings us to that point. And so we see in this scripture that this, this woman is a wife or a widow, of a husband that was the son of the prophets. And the son of the prophets is nothing more than a prophet guild, a community of prophets. And in this community of prophets, there was one head prophet. And this head prophet was Elisha. And she was in crisis. The historian Josephus would lead us to believe that this was the wife of the prophet Obadiah. And if you know your scriptures, back in First, uh, first Kings, we see that Obadiah, chapter 18 that Obadiah was the prophet that hid 100 prophets in a cave and fed them and kept them hid while Jezebel was out killing prophets. So it's very likely true that the reason why this widow was in crisis wasn't because she was irresponsible, wasn't because she lived an extravagant life. It was because her husband was faithful to God and protected 100 prophets and put their family in debt to do God's work. Now, she was obviously in crisis. We're told that she cried out. We're told that she had a collector at her door ready to put her sons in servanthood. Back in that day, the Mosaic Law says, if you can't pay your debt, you're sold into slavery until you can. Aren't you glad that's not today? You know, I read somewhere where the average credit card debt is over $10,000. Can you imagine being sold into slavery to pay your bills? So this lady is in absolute crisis. And the prophet asks her, what do you have? She says, I have nothing. So we can extrapolate that she probably didn't have any food. She obviously had no money. And she says, I have nothing but a flask of oil. And I think about this time, God just grinning. Wow, that's just the right nothing. And so crisis usually leads us to this point of nothing. The second point I want to look at is that our nothing really, really matters to God. I think God gets us to this point sometimes that, that he's trying to say, okay, now are you ready to listen? Are you ready to really hear what I have to say for you? And... Um, we see that this woman had a small flask of oil. And the prophet gives this gal a really strange command. Now, I, I find it strange because my mind is a little bit 
warped at times when I read Scripture, and I think, wow, this is such a bizarre thing. Now, how many people find it bizarre that the command was to go gather a bunch of empty pots? I mean, don't you think it's strange that this woman have nothing, and the command comes, go gather more nothing? Now, how many of you guys made it through Math 101? Okay, I have a really tough question for you. Zero times zero equals? Piece of cake, right? So to have nothing and gather nothing equals nothing. Not to God. And if you really get into the physics of things and stuff like that, and you really get into the intellectual mind, you'll find that scientists really believe that zero times zero equals infinity. Okay? So that's kind of God's mind. You know, that zero times zero equals infinity, meaning... I have all kinds of options here. When you don't get in the way, and you don't clog up the mechanism, I can really do something big. So zero times zero equals zero. Uh, but in God's eyes, it obviously eats something more than zero. It's important for us to see that little things matter to God. We see it throughout Scripture. Five stones in the hand of a teenager mattered to God. Have you ever studied that story? It's kind of interesting. The very thing that was supposed to destroy David, the sword, was the very thing that God provided to destroy Goliath. Because you see that he cut his head off. Because small things matter. Five stones. Two loaves. Five loaves, two fishes. The disciples steal a little kid's lunch. Right? You know? Basically, that's what they did. You know, they look around, they have to have some food to feed 5,000 people, and all they come up with is five loaves, two fish. This little kid had it, so they, you know, they nail his shit, you know, they grab it from us, and, you know, we got a bigger thing for this, and God feeds 5,000 people. Little things really, really matter to God. Jesus took spit, mixed it with mud, and healed the blind. See, oftentimes in life, we think it's all the big things. It's all important. You know, if you're like me, when you study news or you look at the Wall Street Journal or something along those lines, you know, where do you go? You go to the highlights, right? Uh, dude, I just want the big stuff. I want the big events. I don't waste my time with the small events. But when you miss the small events, sometimes you miss the most miraculous stories of all. And so small things matter to God. In Genesis 1, I think I have that on a... Yeah, let's read this aloud together. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. Now, what was the earth? Formless and empty. And God covered the earth. Job. I think I have another one in Job. Job 26. God stretched the northern skies on our empty space and hangs the earth on what? Are you getting the idea that nothing can be most, one of the strongest things that God has to use? And that's key to receiving from God. One of the other stories that I love in the New Testament is this, the first miracle that Jesus performs, John 2, turning water into wine. I just love that. His mom kind of says, hey, I know who you are, and you know, kind of puts him in a spot, you know, kind of like we do as parents all the time. You know, oh, our kids are so great. Let's just kind of see if they can you know, shine. We kind of do that to them. And Jesus kind of backs off and says, it's not my time, but you know, his mom's pretty smart. So just keep your eye on this guy. And what we're told is that Jesus took six empty jars, 20 to 30 gallons, 
And he just had them put one thing in them. Water. And it says, and they scooped it out, and they took it to the master of ceremonies, and it turned into the greatest wine that ever was. The Bible is full of examples of small things, nothingness, and being turned into something great for God. Because the people were willing to understand that their talent doesn't matter. Their skills don't make a difference. And don't get me wrong. As a coach, I teach people to leverage everything they are for God. Randy can contest that. Jeremy, you know, everybody can contest that. That I teach people how to take everything they are, leverage it for God, and do a work for Him. But the most valuable thing they have is when they come to the end of themselves and say, God, no matter what it is, the mission, the vision, the talent you've given me, I lay them aside and I'll just do what you want me to do. When you want me to do it, how you want me to do it. So the thing that we need to understand is that God, God has started with nothing since the beginning. He uses nothing on an everyday basis. And that when you bring your nothing to him, it becomes the strongest thing that we have when we place ourselves in his control. So the third point I want to bring out of this portion of Scripture is found in verses 3 through 5 is that with our nothing, we need to be obedient. Now, this is kind of a strange thing in America today because I deal with a lot of Christians. And the thing that's so funny is that I get this idea that a lot of times we think that God grades on a curve. We take this grace thing and we have decided that, well, you know, I really don't have to do it all the way. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like, has anybody ever bought a swing set? I mean, those things smell like smoke and they have heat around them, okay? I mean, they come from a place that just should never be around. They are the most complicated, craziest thing in the world. If you ever read a maintenance thing on a swing set, you'll never, ever buy another swing set. You mean, I've got to come out here and oil and grease and do all this on a periodic basis so my kids can be safe. It gets to be a real complicated thing. But if you didn't follow the instructions to a T on a swing set, and you decide to say, well, you know, this chain doesn't have to really be attached up here. I'll just kind of hang it here or just wrap it around a little bit. Would you ever let your kid get on it? No, so the importance of following the steps are important. And the thing about this is that when we have little obediences, they're really huge. And so let's face it, the widow had several obedience that he needed to follow. But I want to bring out to the point that, you know, God wants us to understand that it's the little obediences that are stepping stones to his blessing. The little obediences are stepping stones to his blessing. My wife and I have been married for 35, almost 36 years, and we have gone through several crises in our life. Most of them have not been due to our choices. They've just been surprised. We're here to stay for a while. And it amazes me that every time we just walk through the little obediences, that God's blessing begins to unfold. There isn't a one of us that isn't going to go down on our knees when there's a major issue going on that doesn't say, okay, God, will do it your way. But I can tell you, I have a habit of every day when things are going good, blowing by some of the little things that can make all the difference in the world. See, obeying God requires us sometimes to do something a little ridiculous, like collect empty pots. And obeying God never proves to be disappointing. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. And obeying God always allows him to let go of his power. 
But the re- really big thing about small obedience that really shook me up was when I read that portion of Scripture in the Gospel where Jesus says, those who love me obey my commandments. And for the first time in history, obedience is equated to measure how we love God. Up to that point, it's all around blessings, it's all around getting things. And Jesus says, wait a minute, the bottom line is your obedience is the measurement of how much you love me. And I don't know about you guys, that scared the daylights out of me when I started reading that. Because what my life showed was that there are times when I don't love Jesus as much as I should love Jesus. Okay? So we, uh, it costs us something. So let's look at the little steps in this portion of Scripture. The first little step of obedience was what? To gather empty jars. Okay? Can you imagine <laughs> what the neighbors thought once you gathered all these? Hey, yes. Hey, how you doing? Fine. Can I borrow all your empty jars? Now, what would you have thought? You know, I want I wanted all your empty jars. And so, oh, are you sure you don't have any more empty? The prophet told me I had to, not just a few, I had to collect all I could find. You know, you mind if I go through your kitchen? <laughs> Can you just you get this idea? You know, people, as gossip goes, you know, people could have said, well, this gal's really lost it. Or maybe they said, well, we know the prophet said this, but you really don't have to be that thorough. It's okay. Okay, so the first little thing of step of obedience was she had to gather the empty jars. The second step of obedience was that she was told to close the door. You know, there are just some miracles that are private. You know, we like the big spectacle miracles. But what I've really learned to realize is that most people don't want miracles at all. What they really want is magic. Because you know what magic is. It's an entertainment. You do nothing. I pull a rabbit out of the hat. You do nothing. I pick your card out of the air. You do nothing. I clap two rings together. You know, I levitate. I do whatever. You do nothing. You sit there as a spectator. But I challenge you to show me one place in Scripture where a miracle was. It didn't cost the person who got the miracle something. Reaching their hand out. Getting up and taking the effort to walk. Collecting a bunch of empty pots. See, miracles, though they're the miraculous thing from God, and and they're through His grace and they're free, but it usually takes a little bit of effort from us to get the process moving. So she closed the door. The third step of obedience is that she started to pour that small flask into the first pot. Now, I don't know about you, but my analytical mind is I have this little flask of oil, and I have... This first pot. My mind works that I would grab the biggest pot first. I would take this, begin to dump. And my intellectual mind would say, the minute I dump this flask in this pot, I have wasted the last bit of what I had. Because it's barely going to cover the bottom of this pot. And then I'm done. Can you imagine the excitement? As she took this little thing, she began to pour in that pot. They got a little filler. A little fuller, a little fuller, and and it got to the brim. Could you see her son's eyes going, you know, just blowing up, going, oh, my word. And can you imagine the excitement as it built and as she began to fill pot after pot after pot? 
don't know how many of you guys, but there's times when I just start seeing God move in somebody's life, and I just begin to laugh, really uncontrollably, because it just amazes me how surprised we are when God flexes his muscles. And I just begin to giggle and laugh and think, you know, how hilarious is this? You know, this guy wasn't expected it. He got blindsided by a move of God. And it, it just makes me chuckle every time it happens because it's like, yeah, God, you showed up again. And why are we so easily befuddled by the process? So the last step of obedience this lady had to do was she had to keep on pouring. Right? What's our tendency? We pour the pot. We start adding up the things. We're short on our bills. We pull the money out of the piggy bank. We gather and we dig through the couch. And we, we do all the things that we do to gather that money. And we go, oh, yeah, I need 10 more cents. 10 cents, boom, that's it. We got our money. You know, and that's it. And I think the tendency for us is that we start pouring the pots. This woman was sitting there and she's pouring and she's pouring and she's pouring. And she got, you know, one more pot and I can pay off the creditor. So she pours a couple more pots and says, you know, there's just enough here for us to live on for a while. And the tendency, I think, and the temptation is to stop. And then she looked around the room and she saw she still had a half a room of empty pots. So I think the biggest obedience of all was the fact of keep on pouring. And to continue to pour. And I want to tell you that, you know, we, sometimes God asks to do certain things. And our friends begin to ridicule us. Even our spiritual leaders sometimes don't understand how God is working in our lives. And, and, and I've had this with you. I've got four children. And there's a lot of times my youngest, my middle daughter, Bethany, you guys know her well. She came home from Master's Commission at Fiat Foursquare Church. And she said, Dad, God's calling me to go to Africa for three months. That's just a 19-year-old gal. I'm going to work with orphans, and I'm going to take pictures. And I said, was my, what was my response? Oh, yes, you're hearing from God. No, that was not my response. My response, are you crazy? That's not God. You know, and I had to sit back and say, okay, God, whatever you want to do. And she went to Africa by herself for three months. She took pictures of orphans. She ministered with orphans. She did baptismals in pools. They drove clear out in the desert and they poured the only, the most valuable thing they had, water, in a waiting pool and baptized people. She told us about the times when swarms of locusts would fly through and they'd be out there in the middle of the desert and no, no shelter. And all you could do was cover your hands and hope that they wouldn't crawl in any orifice that you had open. She told us of times when they would stand in the desert and out of the sand a scorpion would come and follow you around because it needed shade. And I was just blown away how God impacted her life. And she's in full-time Christian ministry as a youth pastor in Salem, Oregon, because she went to South Africa for three months. And she heard from God, and I did. And she didn't let me waver. And I'm so glad she didn't listen to me as a father because she never would have experienced it. What would happen to the widow if she had taken her flask of oil and done nothing? Absolutely nothing. She would have had just what she started with, nothing. 
But because she had the obedience to go through the process, she didn't shortchange herself. I love the Old Testament with their practical stories. If, you, if a person was to flip forward into 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 13, you will see a story of, it's the last miracle Elisha does in his life. He's on his deathbed, and the king comes to him and says, Oh, Father, Father, I can see the chariots are ready to take you away. And, and that's kind of a symbol of Elisha. And uh, he's just so, so distraught. And Elijah, Elisha says, Take your bow and point it out the window and shoot it. And as the king pulls his bow, Elisha lays his hand on it, and he shoots the bow. And he said, That's the arrow of God's victory for Israel. And then he gives another instruction. He says, take the rest of the arrows. And he said, beat the ground. Just smack the ground. And you see that the king smacked the ground three times. And Elisha's livid. What are you doing? You should have smacked the ground five or six times. Now you're only going to be victorious for three years. And you're not going to crush your enemy. I think sometimes we don't understand the importance of excellence in our obedience. Sometimes we do that half-hearted effort. Yes, God, and I've done it. Yes, God, I know you've called me to do this. I know I need to be obedient. And you go through the motions and you do just enough to be obedient. And God moves. But we shortchange his blessing. We shortchange his power because we're not willing to do the excellent thing. I have a scripture slide. Matthew. Matthew 25, 23, it says, The master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. So what's the key behind being faithful for more? Being faithful for little. Okay, and that whole concept of faithfulness is really along the lines of excellence. You know, faithfulness is this complete action, meaning you've done what I told you to do, when I told you to do it, how I told you to do it. Now, we know in the, you know in the world of business that if you do your job, you do it well, and you do it over and above and beyond, you usually get a promotion or you usually get a bonus or something along those lines. And usually the concept of business is, you know, if you want something done, you give it to the busiest person that's there. Why? Because they've proven to be faithful. Well, you know, that's kind of how God works. He's just saying, if you are faithful, Greg, in this little thing, When you're ready, I can make you faithful for this much. And if you're faithful this much, then I can be faithful this much. And if we're not receiving from God, it may be because though we're obedient, we're just kind of going through the motions. We're just doing what we barely have to do to get by because we don't want to really work so hard. So the last point I have is that our nothing can be something, God's something. Our nothing can be God's something. So let's just think for a moment. What was the real limitation to this miracle? Was it the faith of the woman? No. Was it the woman's flask of oil? I don't think so. What was the limit to this miracle? The number of pots that she gathered. You see, it wasn't the woman's emptiness that was the limit. It was her lack of emptiness that was the limit for what she was doing. Okay, because if she would have had more pots, she would have gotten more oil. Because we're told in the scripture that when, when did the oil stop flowing? 
when the last pot was full. So the key is what? To get more emptiness. Sometimes our limitedness of receiving what God wants for us is the fact that we don't have enough emptiness. We're not willing to pour ourselves out so that he can pour in. So she wasn't limited by her emptiness. She was looking by her lack of emptiness. So I want you to notice something else. That when she had nothing, and her nothing became God's something, that something became something for the community. Now, that's kind of a confusing sentence, so let me really boil it down. Her little bit of oil became a lot of oil, and she sold it, and now the community had a glut of oil. Isn't that how God works in the church? Randy has a miracle in his life. He shares that with the congregation. Randy's faith is bolstered. The congregation's faith is bolstered. Our friends' faiths are bolstered. Randy rejoices. His wife rejoices. The congregation rejoices. See, that's how nothing works. Is that when God takes our nothing, turns it into something, that something is always more than enough for just an individual. It's for the congregation. I mean, you can see that in the story of the prodigal son. I love that sentence in that scripture, prodigal son. It just... It really is the key to nothingness. There's that little tiny sentence in there that says, when he came to his senses. Isn't that the key of nothingness? When we come to our senses, that what we really have to offer God is nothing compared to what he has to offer us. And the prodigal son was there feeding pigs, and he came to his senses, and he says this thing, the pigs are better off than I am. And my father's slaves are better off than I am. So he packs up his nothing, and he goes home, and he repents to his father, who runs his way. And he says, Father, I have nothing. I've spoiled it all. It's gone. Forgive me. And the father took his nothing and turned it into a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, a robe on his back, and he killed the fatted calf. And not only did the son get to celebrate, but the whole community got the benefit of the restoration of the son. His dad threw him a party. You see it throughout the New Testament. You know, the Bible tells us that, you know, when angels rejoice when people come to know him. It's a celebration. You know, we look at it and say, oh, you know, my neighbor came to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. We don't understand. There is a celebration going on in heaven that we just can't contain. Because it's the little obediences. It's that nothing that God turns into something that makes this huge thing. Um, did you ever wonder why so many empty pots might have been laying around in the village? Maybe you can read the scripture and probably never get that. But I, I kept wondering, why could you gather so many empty pots? And it's maybe because she wasn't the only one in need in the village. If there would have been enough oil in the village, would she have just had a flask? I mean, if there was a member of your congregation and they're really destitute, wouldn't you guys, with abundance, help them out? So what that tells me is that there was a whole bunch of emptiness in the village because the whole village was in need. More than likely, it was a huge drought. And they, nobody had anything other than 
a few pennies to put together. But yet, her need, God made something, and the entire community benefited from that process. Because there was a massive amount of emptiness out there that was met through her need being met. Don't ever shortchange God. Don't be afraid to bring your nothing to God because it may, be, it may become the very something that your neighbor needs. Okay? So I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And as they prepare, I want to uh, really kind of boil this thing down. That Richard Wormbrandt really kind of had come to realize that our emptiness is the greatest thing we can bring to God. And that nothing is the strongest substance we have before Jesus. Now that seems a little strange, but I think that's key for us to understand how we receive from God. And I want to just kind of get it down to the rubber meets the road. Anybody who's been coached by me understands that I can do all this philosophical stuff all day long. But I always end a session with practical steps. Because if I can't give you something to take out of here, then it's just a, a great talk. Okay, But if I can tell you what I think are some of the biggest hindrances to us receiving from God. And I think the first hindrance is that we have preconceived ideas of how we think God needs to work, how he should move. You know, I don't know about you guys, but me, I tell you what, there's times when I have a need, and I, and I, I did this with Val. Okay, God, here's what we need. Here's what we need. I need to have the bills paid. We need to have this. We need, to, you know, and you know, and this is going to be a huge amount of money and all this other stuff. And I laid it out all before God, and He just kind of, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, kind of how He does it. Go now. What are you going to do? And, and the best biblical examples I can give you is that God looked down in heaven and became huggable for the first time in history, and His name was Jesus. And the Jews missed Him. They missed him because they had a preconceived concept of what a savior was going to look like. To them, he was nothing but a carpenter. He was nothing but a rabble-rouser and sometimes a pretty good teacher. They didn't see him as the son of God walking in the flesh. They didn't see him as a huggable God. They didn't see him as their savior and he missed him because they had preconceived ideas of what they needed. I think the second thing is that we have a worldly view and not a godly view. In this day and age of political whatever, I'm not, I'm not even going to go there, um, but we have this idea of what we think the world should look like. If any of you guys follow the stock market, if any of you guys look at different aspects of the, this country, it's pretty easy to get gloomy. But you know, Peter got rebuked for looking through the world's eyes. When Jesus was unfolding to his disciples that he was going to die and raise again, Peter says, no way, not going to happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And here's what his words, you are seen through the world's eyes and not God's eyes. The second hindrance for us to receive from God is sometimes we view more in the world than we do on God. And we do understand that God does things a whole lot different than we do things. And his perspective is a whole lot different than ours. And one of the things I try to teach my clients is that God always looks through eternity. 
And we always look through the present. And when God unfolds his plan, he looks at it because he has eternity to unfold. And we get panicky because we oftentimes spend more time worrying about the present than understand that God's ultimate goal is to restore mankind back to him and to walk in fellowship with us again in the present. The third thing is that we have wrong motives. Now, sometimes they sound pure, but the best story I can find in Scripture is Simon the Magician in Acts 8. And if you know that, he's saved by Philip. He comes to Jesus, and then Peter and John walk into the thing, and they start praying over people, and they're getting filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And and this Simon the Magician is just excited, and he goes, Wow, that's a great power. I'd love to have that power to be able to fill people with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's pretty admirable. I mean, anybody here would love to be able to just... Lay hands on somebody and have the presence of God just fall on them. I mean, preamble. But what does he do? He goes up and says, Hey, tell you what, how much is it going to cost me to get this power? Wrong motive. I need to buy this so I can do something with it. You see, sometimes our motives become pure, but until you really get down to the bottom line, the motives get a little bit flaky. And the last thing is that Maybe we're not really willing to do what we need to do to receive what God wants us to receive. Maybe we got that little secret sin running around in our lives. Maybe we got some bitterness going on. Maybe we've got some unforgiveness. Maybe we want to bargain with God. Has anybody ever played that game? I've done it. If you will, I will. And God just kind of smiles. You know. If you will, I will. You know, and he just says, oh, you're not ready. When I knew that Belle and I were ready to face the crisis that we went through was when both of us sat down and she prayed at first and she said, God, all I want is your glory through this situation. And she didn't have a whole bunch of preconceived anything. She just said, I just want what you want. Just let your glory shine. And I thought, wow, I could have prayed a whole lot of God. I want this, I want this, I want this, and he just boiled down, and by the time her surgery came up, all we said was, God, just shine through the situation. Let people see your light. No matter the outcome, no matter the ramifications, whatever you want, God, we're willing to be part of it. Now, I'm here to happy to tell you that they got all the cancer. She's on a minor follow-up process. We had two prayers. The first prayer was the cancer would not penetrate over 50% of the wall of the uterus. And guess where the cancer stopped? 50% of the wall of the uterus. They took out a couple of lymph nodes, found out they were empty. Well, yes, Jesus. And the second prayer was that this cancer is not an hereditary kind of cancer because I have three daughters. And the first thing the doctor told us was, oh, by the way, this is not a hereditary kind of cancer. And we just broke before God and said, God, thank you so much. You know, I could have laid out all this stuff in the world, but all we just said was, God, all we just wanted you to be glorified. So as they begin to play... I just want us to, to take time this morning and let's just bow our heads and let's just empty our hearts and realize that the most powerful thing we can do to receive is to put our talents aside, to put our preconceived ideas aside, to put our will aside, all those dreams and visions that God is working in your heart, hold those lightly, put those aside and just say, Jesus, we want what you have for us. So Father, we just, I just everybody just raise your cup as if it's, a communion cup. Just raise your hands, your empty hands. And Holy Spirit, I just ask right now that you pour out upon this congregation. 
God, our nothing is yours. To make something for ourselves, for this church, and for your community. God, help us to receive all that you are. Help us to get out of your way. Help us to be vessels of your glory. We lay it aside, Jesus. We ask for your filling. In Jesus' name, amen.